We're going to ask for volunteers to role play with me in front of everybody. Now, those of you that might be a little hesitant, if you're wondering whether or not I want, you want to do it, I just want you to know in advance, just want you to know it's going to be horrible. You need three volunteers. All right, your hand went up first. You and you. All right, so you guys are going to get a slight amount of information that they do not have. I'm going to go through the same role play with all three people, put them in the same situation, say pretty much exactly the same thing. I'm going to use three different voices with each person. My choice of voice will change how their brain operates. It's an involuntary response. I'm going to reach in to their brain and speed it up or slow it down or send it sideways at will. I will take each person through these. I will start with the assertive voice. Those of you that have, have read the book know that we believe there are three types. Fight, flight, make friends from the caveman days. So I'm going to start with the assertive voice. It will cause them to be combative. Then I'm going to switch to the infamous late night FM DJ. It will slow their brain down. It's an involuntary response. Then I'm going to switch to the accommodator's voice, the happy smiling voice. Their brain will kick up instantly. Now, what you're going to begin to learn about the neuroscience rules is the neuroscience rules are always rules. It always has this effect on everybody, regardless of gender or ethnicity. Understanding something is also understanding what's not being said. What I didn't promise you is the degree of impact it will have. And with all the skills that we teach you, it will always have a certain effect. The degree of impact will vary. You will see this effect on each one of these people. They will all react to different degrees. Some of them will be extremely pronounced. Some will be almost not discernible. The takeaway there for the lesson for you when you implement skills, if you don't see it have the impact that you've seen it have on others, you say, oh, it failed, it didn't work. No, it didn't fail, you need more of it. So the difference between type of impact and degree of impact. And we'll be talking a lot about a lot of those things. So I will use all three voices with all three people. Please look for the differences in how their brain works. You know, that'll be indicated by their nonverbals. Their voice will change. Their body language will change. Body language postures that they adopt will affect how their brain thinks. If you pay attention to just that, you'll get enough takeaways. They'll all do a lot of good things. Did I leave anything out? Uh, no, the only other thing that I wanted to add, when he's in the assertive voice, there will be pressure. There will be stress that is induced on the participant. Going back to what I said earlier about the discomfort that negotiations causes, you watch how it manifests itself in each of the three individuals, especially when he's in the assertive voice. They're going to be taught or told explicitly what they cannot negotiate with him about and watch how quickly at least one will violate the rule and immediately jump into problem solving for an item that's prohibited. That's what we do when we are under stress and pressure. Some people are willing to violate policy rules and laws just to get out from under that discomfort. So pay particular attention to that when, when he's in the assertive voice. All right, <clears throat> this is the scenario. I'm a bad guy, bank robber trapped in a bank. You're the law enforcement hostage negotiator that's gonna talk me. You don't know how many bank robbers there are. You don't know how many hostages we have. All you know is you and your colleagues have the bank surrounded. It's your job to talk me out. You have four restrictions. There are four things you cannot do. 
please feel free to take notes should you choose to do so. The four things you cannot do. You cannot give me weapons. You can't give me transportation. You cannot give me drugs or alcohol. And there's no exchange of hostages. You know, like uh, exchange of hostages, you can't offer to come in if I let people out. No one comes in, people only come out. When we start, we will simulate being over the phone. You'll say ring, ring, I'll answer, and we'll begin. When you're ready, say ring, ring. Ring, ring. I need a car in 60 seconds or she dies. How do you expect me to do that? You put a car right out front, you put it directly in front of the bank, I come out, I leave. That's how you do it. Who am I speaking with? I have no intention of telling you that you've got 55 seconds. How do we negotiate if I'm not aware of the safety of the hostages? You will find out the safety of the hostages as soon as I leave the bank. Where, where's your leverage if you take out my house? My leverage is I'm going to start killing people right away if you don't put that car out front. So you've got 50 seconds. What are you looking for? Are you not listening to me? I think that we need to get on Did a... you hear me tell you I wanted a car? Now you have 45 seconds. I heard you. All right, so I... you know I need a car. Yes or no? I understand that you need a vehicle. Fine. Yes or no? 43 seconds. How do you expect me to get a vehicle that quickly for you? So you can get me a vehicle if you have enough time. Perfect. You've just agreed to give me a vehicle. No. We can figure out a way to do that if you give me some proof of life. I have no intention. I'm going to give you proof of death in 35 seconds if you don't put a car up front. I'm just not sure that we can do it that quickly. So you can do it. I think that if we get you going... You made it sound like the only problem is time. I think that's the only problem with a lot of things. So you can give me a call. I think there's a potential to provide you... You have 30 seconds to provide the call. How Either about you, you give me something and then we can work it out? No. I'm giving you 30 seconds. I just don't see how we're going to get anywhere with this kind of adversarial relationship. Then I'll start throwing bodies out the front door. I'm just start killing away every, every minute if you want. You get 30 seconds. How do I know that you're not going to kill if I get you the vehicle? Because I'll be gone. I just don't think we're negotiating here. You want me to kill her right now? I'll kill her right now. You, but it doesn't matter to me. I got other people. Is that your goal? To have the send in bloodshed? If necessary, it's your call. Can you at least tell me your name? No. It seems like this is the only resolution is us coming in. All right, we're going to stop there. Nice job. Nice job. Now let's get started. Let me start out by reminding you one of the Black Swan Group's great rules. The secret to gaining the upper hand in any negotiation is giving the other side the illusion of control. If somebody gives you a take it or leave it offer in negotiations, there's kind of only three possibilities. Number one, they're either highly insecure. Number two, they're under a lot of pressure. Number three, they're testing you. I recently spoke to Mark Cuban about this. I did an interview with him on Fireside, a new social media app. 
And I'd noticed before he likes to do the take it or leave it offers a lot on Shark Tank. So I told him, you know, I think you're testing people to see how they handle the pressure, to see how they can represent you. Because one time on Shark Tank, he said, look, you got to take this offer from me. You can't talk to anybody else. Take it or leave it right now before you speak to anybody else. And the entrepreneur looked back at him and said, if I was representing you, you wouldn't want me to get pushed around like that, would you? Subtle side hit. That's a no-oriented question. And he stopped and he relaxed for a second and he said, now, you can go ahead and talk to them. He likes to test people. He likes to see how they bear up under pressure. So let's go back to how he started. They're highly insecure. Or they're under a lot of pressure. Or even they're testing you. I've got four approaches for you for dealing with this. Number one, the no-oriented question, which was pretty much the one that I just gave you a few moments ago. You wouldn't want me to get pushed around if I was representing you, would you? It's an obvious no. Here's another one that can help with the other two types. Is it disrespectful if I ask to clarify a few points? If they're insecure or they're under a lot of pressure, of course, getting somebody to say no makes them feel safe and secure. And they're happy to proceed. And what you want someone who's either insecure or under a lot of pressure to feel is safe and secure. So this is a great way for our first response. The next response, use a mirror. Repeat the last three words of what they just said. So take it or leave it offer. Your mirror would be, take it or leave it? With that upward inflection. Boy, that upward inflection is great for making sure something lands gently. Even something you're afraid may sound harsh. So again, I'll do it for you. Take it or leave it? It's gentle and it's inquiring. Mirrors are great for keeping people talking. Number three, a gentle label. Here's a good label to use. It sounds like there's no movement on any of these points. Notice the downward inflection. Or you could hit them with the upward inflection. It sounds like there's no movement on any of these points. Either way, a gentle label gets people talking. If there's no movement, they're going to tell you that. Most likely, they'll soften someplace. Read what they say. Read the look in the moment. Gather data with your eyes. If you're on the phone, listen to how long the silence is before they answer and what their tone of voice is when they do answer. Number four, use generosity to your advantage in your label. Say, you've been very generous. It sounds like there's nothing more you can do. Now, you want to get generosity out of people, even when they're seeming stingy and pushy, and especially when they're seeming stingy and pushy. While you feel they're being stingy and pushy, they probably feel they're being generous. I know it sounds ridiculous, but that's what empathy is all about. So if you need more generosity from the other side, Label it to see if you can nurture it and get some more. That's a great thing about saying you've been very generous with someone who doesn't seem particularly generous to you, but understand it's not about you. Chances are if they're being backed into a corner or they feel insecure, they actually feel they're being generous. So you want more of it? Label it. And then the last part, it sounds like there's nothing more you can do. Well, it's very difficult to say yes ever, even to a label. 
So even if they do say yes, they're going to want to say more. They're going to want to keep talking. Be prepared to mirror and label what they say in response to this label or any of the things that you say and read their tone of voice and look on their face. Remember, one of the cardinal rules of negotiation in the Black Swan Group and the Black Swan Method is never be mean to someone who could hurt you by doing nothing. The flip side of it is, if they feel like it, they could probably do a lot. So this is the way to get them to do as much as they can do and to make them feel good about the process. Remember, it's all about getting your repetitions in. So practice with a friend, family member, or coworker before your next high-stakes negotiation to be fully prepared. Remember, you don't get in life what's fair, you get what you negotiate. If you want to become a better negotiator, click the link in the description below. So if I'm a, if I'm a, if I've got hostages and I call you and I say, listen, I want a car. I think I saw this one on your YouTube channel. I want a car in 60 seconds outside. Right. Um, what do you, what's the first thing you say to me? You want to try? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So I'm the, you're the bad guy. I'm the bad guy. Okay. Yeah. Chris, I'm going to blow this woman's head off. If you don't give me a car in the next 60 seconds. How am I supposed to do that? Not my problem. You got 55 seconds. All right. So if I wanted to do it, it's just, it's madness out here. It's chaos. I mean, this is Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey Circus is organized compared to the nonsense that's going on out there. So even if I wanted to do it, I can't do it in that time frame. I'm sure you're, you're the FBI. You're the police. I mean, you can make anything happen. 50 seconds. Sounds to me like you're not going to give me a chance. I'm giving you a chance right now. 50 seconds, Chris. There's plenty of cars out there. Go get one of the cars and pull it up outside or I'm going to blow her head off. Sounds like you have a reason to live. I do have a reason to live. But that's none of your business. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to find out why. I mean, my first number one thing is to make sure that you live. So get me a car and I will drive off. Honestly, you've got 45 seconds. I don't want to talk anymore. If you're not going to give me a chance, how am I supposed to do it? I'm giving you a chance. 45 seconds. That's plenty of a chance. Like to me, even find, get all the commanders together and get them to think about this, which they're probably not going to do anyway. I will go and talk to them. But how am I supposed to find them all, talk to them, get them to think about it in 45 seconds? Okay, how long do you need? All right, now, first of all, I want you to understand. I don't think they're going to do it. Well, then I'm going to blow her head off. That would be your choice. See, now, so the other thing, too, is hostage negotiators are successful 93% of the time, which is one of the things that I learned in the business, which means 7% of the time they just ain't coming up. Now, I we have to do everything we can possibly do in the meantime 
But our number one goal is not putting any additional people at risk. Like, I get this question all the time. Like, if you think it's going to save a hostage, why don't you just give them a car and save those hostages? Well, I can't put additional people at risk. And by the way, while we were doing that, mm. I don't know anybody put a clock on us, but we went more than 45 seconds. It's true. And what were you thinking when, as we were going through it? Um, there was all the questions were provoking me into th- all the questions you asked me felt like they were dragging me away from my objective in a quite a tactical way. So I was thinking, oh, isn't this is annoying. He's making me talk and I don't want to talk. That's kind of what I was thinking. And then, yeah, I mean, the questions you asked were making me ponder and they were making me abandon my focus, which was to just get this car and kill this woman. Right. See, which was, I wasn't asking you that stuff to get you to answer. What I was really doing was do exactly what you talked about, get you to ponder, get you to yeah. think. You know, what, what Kahneman would, has talked about in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, pondering, he would call slow thinking, in-depth thinking, where you really think about stuff. And then you really make the decision and you really make up your mind instead of me trying to hustle you. Like I could hustle you into something really quick but it wouldn't be your decision. And the whole point of getting somebody to ponder something is so that when they do come to a decision, they own it. When you said the thing about, even if I wanted to do that, like I couldn't do that in 45 seconds or whatever, there, I liked that sentence because it, obviously there was a degree of empathy there. So even if I wanted to, it wasn't you know, shitting on my parade. It wasn't attacking me too much. And you made me ponder the, the reality of the fact that it's not even possible my demand is not even possible, even if you, you know, were on my side. So that was a very good question to, to make me ponder myself to realize that what I'm asking for is not going to happen. See, there's, there's another reason why I said it like that too. Um, because, you know, a lot of people, if you ask for something in a, in a business deal that they're not going to give you, they give you the classic American lie, I'll try. Mm. You know, and and, uh, and may, maybe it's not an American lie, maybe it's a lie in the English language. Mm. Like, but you know, in any kind of deal, if somebody looks at you and says, I'll try, you don't get a good feeling. No. And you get I'll try enough times, you know, right away it ain't never happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I didn't do I'll try. You know, I, I basically said, I don't think it's going to happen, but I'll check. Because I'm trying to shift us out of an adversarial into a collaborative conversation. And so then... What I'm basically saying is like, I don't want to mislead you. I don't think this is going to happen. I will be your advocate. How important is that collaboration? No relationship survives long term without collaboration. Just, just ain't going to happen. So you're giving me the impression that you're actually on my side to some degree and that we're collaborating to find an outcome together. Yeah, and in point of fact, see, the crazy thing is hostage negotiators have repeat customers. Hmm. If I get you out alive... The chances of um, you straightening out your life are not great. And the chances of you ending up in another hostage siege are high if you don't get killed otherwise. And you got to have a memory of the last hostage negotiator trying to work with you versus the guy hustled you and lied to you, guy or gal. So 
if you always look at all interactions as if you're going to have to pay for everything you said eventually, which means if you lie, you're going to pay for it. If you did everything you could to be collaborative, then your counterpart's going to remember that in the future. Like, well, it didn't go my way, but at least you got in line of me. It's like karma, isn't it? It's karma. A thousand percent it's karma. I'm a, I'm a big believer in karma. Very much. I had a few words to say about one of my sponsors on this podcast. As the seasons have begun to change, so has my diet. And um, right now, I'm just going to be completely honest with you, I'm starting to think a lot about slimming down a little bit because over the last couple of, probably the last four or five months, my diet has been pretty bad. Um, and it started to show a little bit. Really over the last two months, I go to the gym about 80% of the time. So I track it with 10 of my friends in a WhatsApp group and this tracker online that we all use together. We call it Fitness Blockchain. And I'm currently at 81%. Um, so 81% of the days I've done a workout in the last 150 days, right? So I'm going to the gym about six times a week. That's been a little bit impacted by the Diary of a CEO live tour, but I'm trying to stick to it. And so one of the things I'm doing now to reduce my calorie intake and trying to get back to being nutritionally complete in all I eat is I'm having the Huel protein shake. Thank you, Huel, for making a product that I actually like. The salted caramel is my favorite. I've got the banana one here, which is the one my girlfriend likes. But for me, salted caramel is the one. How important is it generally in negotiations to listen? Because a lot of people you know, kind of think they can overpower someone with right. just talking at them. Right. Yeah. And and what they're what they're called is um they can't hold a job. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, you you and there are a lot of people that are very visible that are doing that. And in the moment they might look very good. But what ends up happening is they're frequently initially extremely successful and then their success rates drop off a cliff. And then they don't hold the job because they were awesome in their first quarter and had a continuing steady decline in their productivity till it went to zero and they, they can't be tolerated anymore. But everybody sees a really loud guy or gal getting deals or and, and they're the ones that make the most noise about it. So your original question is how is important is listening? There is no negotiation methodology that doesn't list listening as an advanced skill. No matter what school of thought somebody's in, in negotiation, they all list listening as advanced. Far more difficult than simply keeping quiet. It's critical. And you will actually end up uh, increasing the velocity of your deal cycles by listening which a lot of people think it's really counterintuitive. But, you know, I did, I did an interview with Mark Cuban six or seven months ago, and I talked about listening. And he's like, yeah, you know, if I take the time to, to really hear somebody out in our first deal and pay attention to what's important with them, then every deal after that will come to me faster, having done it right up front. And it'll increase the velocity of my ability to make deals with them because they'll trust me. They'll know that I hear them out. They know that I'm looking out for them. And consequently, you know, it doesn't take me a long time to establish trust. And we come back, we come to the table, we get right down to it. And it really increases the velocity of my ability to make deals. 
And a lot of people can't see that because I got to hear them out. I got to, you know, blah, blah, blah. I got to find out what their point of view is. It seems highly efficient. But what it is is incredibly efficient long term. And then as it relates to speaking, when you're talking, when you were talking to me then in our little dummy negotiation, um, I noticed the tone of voice you took was very, very calm. You list in the book three different voices available to negotiators. Right. Give me a flavor of those three voices that are available to negotiators. Well, there's, there's, there's three natural types um, in humans. Fight, flight, or make friends. And these are the, uh, our caveman ancestors that lived, either fought the saber-toothed tiger, ran from the saber-toothed tiger, or figured out a way to make friends with it. And the indecisive caveman got eaten by the saber-toothed tiger, doesn't have any descendants. And we've got substantive reason to believe that that exists globally, regardless of gender, ethnicity, um, religion, uh, the three types, the globe splitting pretty evenly into thirds. Got a lot of that on it. Backs it up. Our brothers and sisters at Harvard pretty much agree based on their experience. Wharton has pulled a lot of the same data. comes very, very close to the same. And each type has a voice. You know, and the voice of the assertive, natural-born assertive, which I'm actually a natural-born assertive, is more the Donald Trump-style negotiator. You know, attacking blunt, direct, you know, uh, Ivanka Trump once described her, her dad, Donald, and said, you know, he's not blunt, he's just direct. Well, he's just an example. But, you know, what I think is direct, you f feel like you got hit in the face with a brick, <laughs> which is always counterproductive long-term, always, always, always long-term counterproductive, inhibits your ability to make deals, People get tired of getting hit in the face with a brick. So it wears them out. Then there's the very analytical type, um, which was, you know, the soothing, calming voice that I was using. Triggers a neuro neurochemical response in you. It actually calms you down neurochemically. It's an involuntary automatic response. Now, you can fight it. You can fight your way back out of it. But you can't stop me from getting the calming neurochemicals started in your head. And, you know, with, if, if you're careful not to seem either cold or condescending, that tone of voice is what the great TV interviewers use, the great news anchors, because there's a lot of, there's confidence mm. and calm simultaneously, and people really like it. And then there's, you know, there's a smiling voice, a friendly voice, and somebody just smiles when they speak. That triggers a different neurochemical reaction. The people that you automatically like right away, as soon as, as soon as you lay eyes on them, as soon as they start speaking, you know, and there's an advantage to that. So I was using in, a, in an emotional situation, to, and if you're in a, an emotional negotiation, you know, you want to go with the the soothing voice and smile, sprinkle that in, and now you kind of you get the combination of both of them, and it's it's collaboration. You're gonna want to collaborate with me if I use that voice. I guess it's an attempt, and as you say, to like pacify, pacify them. The other thing that I, in chapter three of your book, you talk about is. Oh, by the way, you got a pretty good voice. I oh, mean, you, you. you got you got a, you got you you're basically downward inflecting. 
Mm. Your voice portrays, first of all, it's very genuine, mm. but it portrays a guy who's actually really thinking about what he says and he actually listens. Oh, that's a very kind compliment. Thank you. But she's still going to die. <laughs> <laughs> this video is about labels. The ultimate negotiation tool. Sometimes we think of it as the ultimate MacGyver tool. What makes it a MacGyver tool? Well, a MacGyver tool is really simple and incredibly effective, ridiculously effective. To do your labels right, you gotta keep them simple. Stick to the format. It seems like, it sounds like, it looks like. You seem, you sound, you look. We have a great negotiator that loves to say it feels like. Stick to that simple format. We're intentionally leaving the word I out. I is a thought interrupter, a pattern interrupter. When you use the word I, it draws attention to yourself. It interrupts the other side's thinking and you're using labels to gather information. We know from negotiation the idea is to gather information. A crazy thing is asking questions is not always the best way to gather information. Labels, work well more of the time than asking questions do. Labels trigger stream of consciousness reactions. You might say to somebody, what are you thinking about this? You might label them instead and say, seems like you're giving this a lot of thought, or it seems like you're thinking about something here, or it seems like you saw some things you like. Either one of those is gonna trigger a much more unvarnished flow of thoughts from the other side. One of the people who's really learned this stuff and is doing a great job of applying this in the real estate area calls it unlocking the floodgates of truth talk. Happens to be a woman that's applying this and seeing the insights and not the least bit surprising because women have a tendency to pick this stuff up faster than men do. It doesn't mean men can't be great at it also, just that for whatever reason, women seem to get a head start on understanding this and applying it really quickly. This is emotional intelligence-based negotiation. One of the crazy things about this is that when Brandon and I brought these hostage negotiation techniques out of hostage negotiation into the business world, we didn't think labels were that big of a deal. I can tell you now that we both use them so much that we can work our way entirely through a negotiation only using labels. When you get good at them, you respect their simplicity and you apply them, you can use them all over the place. One of the main things that makes labels incredibly versatile is the fact that all three types like them a lot. We've done a lot of polling. We've got a lot of reason to believe that the world pretty much breaks up into three types, assertives, analysts, and accommodators, across the board, regardless of gender or ethnicity. We've probably polled at least 2,000 people in this regard. We've got a fair amount of data. And in polling all these people, and in different classes where we've talked, we frequently run exercises where we ask them, of the nine negotiation skills, which skills would you most prefer your counterpart use with you in order to make a great deal with you? All three types pick labels as number one or number two. So while you're still trying to get a feel for the other side and draw a beat on what type they are, labels will always be your highest percentage shot at the very beginning when you're proceeding. And then if you find out that they resonate really well with labels, you just simply stick to them. It's your safest bet. And the way you go from being barely 
good enough to get by to being a superstar is just by increasing your odds a little bit at a time. Labels increase your odds. Get good at them. Practice them simply. Practice every day. Get your reps in. And they will serve you well. How much practice should you get in? An hour a day. Make an hour label hour. Label at noon. Label over lunch. Label from 7 to 8 every day. Whatever time it is. Get your practice in. Make a cheat sheet of labels. Keep it by your phone. Your cheat sheets should especially include labels of negative dynamics. Fill in a blank. It seems like you hate X. It seems like you dislike X. It seems like X is a problem for you. Have those fill in a blank labels by your phone. Have them ready. They will serve you well. I just wanted to share a little quick, a quick little sort of win that I had last week. Um, I was talking to a client who was requesting a discount from us. They already have a discount from us, but they wanted a further discount because of COVID pandemic stuff. Sure. So I'd had the first conversation where I'd, where, where the CEO of this organization had basically pretty, I don't think it was subtext. I think he pretty much openly said, if you don't give me another discount, I'll take my business elsewhere. So we had a second meeting where my CEO came along. I summarized the situation, um, let him talk for a while. And then I sort of said, it seems like if, we, if we're not in a position to give you an additional discount, that's a deal breaker for you. And he said, oh, whoa, hang on. I mean, you're the one escalating this. I didn't escalate that. That's, um, that's you that's saying that. That's not what I'm saying. Um, and so then the conversation went on. But I just wanted to highlight this little bit because after the call, my CEO sort of turned and said to me, I think, oh, I think he was right when he said that you escalated that. And then I just sort of, I stood my ground and explained to my CEO that, um, A, it was, it was the subtext that I had been reading. And B, by saying that at a time in the conversation, which we did end up agreeing was was appropriate. It was just, it felt a bit risky to him, I think, to my to my CEO. Yeah. We, we extracted from this other person that he wasn't like, he wasn't ready to walk away like he had been sort of threatening me on previous calls. So that's sort of, that's been like a real confidence booster for me because he was also a very, uh, very assertive, unpleasant gentleman. So I just wanted to share that. But that's right is the difference. Now the question becomes, does it work on social pass? So as a kidnapping negotiator, I'm working kidnappings all over the world, Americans doing stupid things, and this is an American that did something stupid in the Philippines, and this is a sociopath that's got him. And this is a negotiator that I'm coaching. And we go round and round for months and finally, and make no mistake, this guy in a bandana is a murdering, raping, killing, sociopathic murdering machine. Does empathy work on sociopaths? This guy's a sociopath. This is a poster child for sociopaths. We're several months into this, and we're going to lay a heavy-duty dose of empathy on this guy, which is say everything they're thinking, saying, and expressed from their point of view until they say that's right. $10 million ransom demand for the American on the table. But $10 million for war damages, for 500 years of oppression from the Spanish to the Japanese to the Americans. Now, immediately, all of you are tuning out 
Because you're saying to yourself, I've never been in an argument where the person on the other side was bringing up stuff from the past that didn't matter anymore. <laughs> that doesn't happen. 500 years of oppression. After about four months of back and forth, I put my guy on the phone, get a that's right out of him. Lay it all out. You're not asking for ransom for the American. You're asking for war damages, for economic harm, the south of the Philippines for 500 years of oppression from the Spanish to the Japanese to the Americans, the injustice of it all. You're not Filipinos anyway. You're a separate, moral, independent homeland. It's being oppressed by a current regime in Manila. It's held up by the latest colonial invaders who are the Americans. Lay it on thick. And my guy talked to the terrorist and laid it on thick. And it was a moment of silence, and the terrorist said, that's right. And the ransom demand went away. We went from $10 million to zero in that moment. It went away. The sociopath let it all go. The case took a couple twists and turns. About four months later, on Monday, Thursday, the Thursday before Easter, the night Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, the American walked away. Walked away. He's walking down a dirt road. Local farmer sees him, says, you must be the American who's been kidnapped. He says, I am. They alert the Philippine military. The military comes down, picks him up, flies him to Manila. They hold a big press conference. The military says, in a daring rescue operation, we have rescued the American. It's a daring. They gave him a ride. <laughs> we got him out of the country. I'm back in Manila about three weeks later. I connect back up with my guy. He says, you're not going to believe who called me. I don't know who called you. The terrorist, sociopath, the killer. The killing machine called him and said, have you been promoted yet? I don't know what it was he said to me on the phone. You're really good. They should promote you. Hangs up the phone. What's he saying in that moment? And think the context. In this negotiation, the sociopath got nothing. And he called his counterpart to say, I felt respected by you. I'd talk to you again. We're okay. Which is a way that everybody you interact with should feel when they get done with the interaction, regardless of how the outcome goes. They should feel so respected and so heard that they can get nothing and say to you, we're okay. I deal with you again. So, Chris, you know, one of, one of the hostage negotiations that you're best known for, you write about in the book, is the DC sniper case. I don't know if people remember back in Washington um, several years ago, you were very involved in that as the FBI's lead hostage negotiator. Can you tell us a little about what was going on in that case and what your role was? Well, we, um, for those of you, uh, uh, we thought it was one sniper back in Washington, D.C., it's been over 10 years now, and it ended up being two of them that were going around shooting people randomly. 
Um, uh, com uh, communication can be actions. Negotiation can be actions. Negotiation, not just words. Well, one, one thing we always uh, phrase I like is the most dangerous negotiation is one you don't know you're in. That cuts either forward. There's no neutral ground on that. It either cuts in your direction or, or you'll be in a negotiation before you know it. So we looked at what the snipers were doing as uh, communication, that they wanted something. They were communicating with their actions. They were communicating through violence. And we started, uh, and actually we found out we were right um, because they got frustrated because they'd actually been calling law enforcement for a while. They started leaving messages at the scenes of the shootings. They were trying to communicate. They ultimately, they, they wanted uh, $10 million. So we looked at that as communication, and then when we finally discovered it, you know, as absurd as it sounds, I was running the negotiation team the morning they called in to speak to us. We found out that they'd actually been calling law enforcement for about 10 days. You know, and it was classic, ridiculous comedy. They called one tip line for the sniper, and the operator didn't know who she was talking to, and she actually said, no, you've got the wrong number. You've got to call somebody else. Imagine that, you know, the serial killers call in. No, let me put you on hold while I transfer you. Uh, they, they also, they got um, one of the executive assistants to one of the chiefs of police in the, in the D.C. metro area. They got him on the phone and spoke to him. He thought it was a joke and didn't take a message, didn't follow up, you know, yeah, 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 and hung up on him. And I think the guy ended up losing his, uh, losing his position after it came out that he'd actually spoken to him on the phone. So it was a series of communication. And so then the most dangerous negotiation is one you don't know you're in. All right, so if they're communicating via actions, what does this mean? What's the commodity that they're after? How do they want to engage? And we engaged with them on the phone, and it, it contributed to how they were caught. And even more importantly, it contributed to them when they tried to uh, um, put forward an insanity defense later on in court. It showed that they were conscious of what they were doing and, and what they were after. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, very much like what you said, reading the other side. You know, you listen so you can read the other side, figure out what they're thinking, what they're doing. So maybe not a life or death situation like you're normally working in, but um, Constance was very involved in Michael Strahan leaving Live with Kelly, getting him that job in the first place on Live with Kelly and then going to GMA. And um, I don't know if you've seen last week's People Magazine cover story. So what can you tell us about those negotiations? Because I think for those of us that were just reading about it, you know, we were probably getting one perspective and it seemed like people were taking sides. But what was it really like behind the scenes? I think a, a big part of, of what we learned was that, oh, she, I guess you can't lean back. I'm so sorry, everybody. No, okay, I'm just there gonna go. sit like this. Sorry. <laughs> negotiation with the It's a good guy. stalling technique in a negotiation, My, right? To have your mic go out for a second. Sit still? Okay. So um, it was intense. Um, I don't know if any of you saw or heard about um, when Conan and Jay Leno and they turned it into a documentary and, and I as a fan you know was watching and like how could something like this happen like these are smart people like these are top-level executives at the networks and I understand now so what I've learned about that is when you're dealing with big corporations people might be sitting this close to one another and they don't communicate so for us the key was over communication um, which might not have appeared like there was over communication but behind the scenes there's a lot of communication over communication and we had to stop really just following what the media was saying because half of it is not true um, half of it is just the salacious gossip magazines which I hope everybody 
you know, don't read and buy. Um, and what we definitely just stayed true was to ourselves and just remembered that it was the same boss, you know, of both television shows employed by ABC asking for this to happen. So I think the key for us was, you know, you get the people that you trust in the room together, you have the same message points, and, and we really just hunkered down and just wrote it out. And so, you know, there wasn't a lot of press from Michael talking about this afterwards, and then this article came out all these months later. So I'm curious how you sort of negotiate the collateral damage or the, the negative publicity and then come out with a, with a cover story like this months later. So people had offered a cover at the same time, you know, right after Kelly had her cover, and we just said, you know what, this isn't, you know, we're done. You know, we did what he was told to do by the executives, um, he made the move, and let's just get through this and let's enjoy the summer and go spend time with your family, and then when it's time to come back for not just his, you know, the new beginnings at GMA full time, but also back to football for him. He still does NFL on Fox every Sunday. Um, he does have four children. He was able to spend some time off that he hadn't had, I think, since, I don't think ever. Um, you know, he played 15 years and then right, went right into a sitcom. And, and then, you know, the Live with Kelly and Michael job. So that's why we waited. Um, and it wasn't about addressing it. It was, you know, this is behind the scenes with me and my family, the side that, you know, you don't get to see. So that was it. So I'm going to tell you about a kidnapping took place in Haiti. 12-year-old boy gets grabbed. 12-year-old boy is an American citizen. He's a dual national. He's the only American in the family that gets grabbed. Now, a couple of interesting things about this. Interesting to me, anyway. You might not find him interesting. What difference does it make that he's a dual national? Well, here's another thing about the kidnapping business. They really don't like grabbing Americans. No, doesn't every kidnapping industry anywhere in the world, whether it be Haiti, whether it be Iraq, you know, whether it be the Philippines, they want to grab locals. They don't want to grab outsiders, particularly Americans. But wait a minute, aren't, aren't Americans supposed to have a great big giant price tag on them on their head? Shouldn't you want to kidnap Americans? Well, if you're in business, what's one of the last things you want to have happen? What do you hate in business? What you hate is more government regulation. You grab an American, pretty soon Uncle Sam, the U.S. government shows up in your country with politicians, with military people, with law enforcement people, with lawyers, and they start interfering in the local operation. That's more government regulation. You don't grab American citizens because you don't need the American government showing up and telling everybody how to do things. So... The vast majority of the kidnappings are worked internationally. When an American was taken, the bad guys didn't even know they had an American, which is the case when they grabbed this 12-year-old boy. Now, they have grabbed this 12-year-old boy in a carjacking, which is an interesting business model. You know, carjack a car with more than one person and let one of those people go. They notify the family right away. There's all sorts of advantages to this, this, this model of kidnapping, not the least of which is what happens if you grab the one person in that family that nobody likes you got a car you're still gonna get paid this is you got an asset you're gonna you're gonna liquidate the asset this is a business transaction where you got uh, you get you guaranteed to at least get something out of it that's why the great thing about the business model in haiti at the time so 12 year old boys have been grabbed he's the only american citizen in his family his father's not an american citizen but he goes to the U.S. government and says, my son's an American citizen. You got to help us. 
And they tell him, the FBI is going to be there to help you. Now, I don't know what would go through your mind if you were told that the FBI was going to be there to help you. Probably, maybe about 15 minutes later, you might hear a knock at the front door, and these guys would be there. Maybe they'd even have on FBI hats to prove that they were FBI agents. Instead, about 15 minutes after this father's told the FBI is going to be there to help him, he gets a call from some guy named Chris Voss, who says he's in Washington, D.C. And he literally says to me on the phone, you're in Washington, D.C. How are you going to help me? Now, put yourself in my place. What would you say? Put yourself in my place. How long before this father hangs up the phone? Now, put yourself in your place. Isn't this exactly what everybody that you deal with on behalf of Zoom is saying to themselves about you? How are you going to help me? Do you have any idea what my challenges are? How are you going to help me? How long do you have before one of your customers, one of your clients hangs up the phone? If not literally, figuratively. How long did I have with this father? How long do you have on a daily basis? If you check the data, how long do you have to make a first impression? Which, by the way, I will tell you is the second most important impression. I'm going to spend some time on first impressions over the coming moments. And it's the second most important impression. What's the most important impression? The last impression. The last impression is the lasting impression. Let's go back to the first impression. In that seven to ten second window that you have, what do you have to establish? Seven to 10 seconds. Do you know? Trust. Trust and competence. Not confidence. Competence. Seven to 10 seconds. And the difference between competence and confidence, because there's a lot of coaching to be confident. A lot of people get a, think they get a long way with confidence. Would you rather have a confident plumber or a competent plumber? Trust and competence. All right, cool. You say to yourself, right, I'm willing to accept that. Seven to 10 seconds seems like a narrow window. How do I establish that? Your resume correlates loosely with whether or not you know what you're doing. You know this now. Your company's capabilities listed out in a value proposition correlate loosely with whether or not someone can trust you to solve their problem. If it correlated strongly, you guys wouldn't even need to talk to clients. You just slide your resume across the table, email them your resume, email them your list of capabilities, and they look at your resume and go like, oh, this person knows what they're talking about. Wow, these capabilities look good. Deal. Where can we sign? 
No, that doesn't happen. The human factor comes into play. Seven to 10 seconds. So how did I establish that with this father instead of trotting out my resume? Because I'd done it wrong before. Here's what I said to this father. All right, Haitian kidnappers are not killing kidnapped victims these days. I realize that's really stupid because they kill each other at the drop of a hat. But for whatever reason, they're not killing kidnapped victims. Now, today is Thursday. And Haitian kidnappers love to party on Saturday night. If you say the things that I want you to say, when I want you to say them, we will have you sent out late Friday, early Saturday morning. He said to me, tell me what you want me to do. And we had a son out Saturday morning. Secret to gaining the upper hand in a negotiation is giving the other side the illusion of control. If you're a control-oriented negotiator, I got you. You're simple. You're really simple. Your overriding objective is to feel in control. So if I make you feel in control, I got you. So, and also, the key to power negotiations is deference. You cannot be deferential and project power. And I got to tell you, if, you if, if I sniff that you're a control-oriented, power-oriented guy, and I'm a cutthroat, you will have bled to death before you knew what happened. And the cutthroats love smelling that. They love it. Because you've, if, if, and, and, it, and it is a type. I mean, it's, it's one that I've been typically have been guilty of myself. You know, assertors want to be in control. I want to project power. I want to, I want to, you want, and if he projects power, how does he feel? Awesome. And when you feel awesome, is your guard up or down? And so all you got to do to get your way with him is the feeling, the emotional moment, if you want to exploit him and take advantage of him, is make him feel powerful. State Department. State, when I'm, when I'm overseas on behalf of the FBI, State Department is in charge overseas. The FBI is in charge of investigations and negotiation strategy. And the FBI is not good at not being in charge. And we're always in charge domestically. And my first time in an embassy in the other country, I'd be like, all right, look, I'm in charge of negotiations. This is how we're going to do this. And State Department would be, you're not in charge of nothing. We're in charge. But I'm in charge of negotiations. But we're in charge. And it'd be a battle. And I'd tell them what to do, and they wouldn't do it. So then I'd walk in, I'd say, you're in charge. Now do this. And they'd go, okay. <laughs> it's silly. But somebody's determined to be powerful and be in charge. Let, make them feel powerful and in charge. Create that emotional moment. You can have your way with them. Did you ever wonder what are the emotional intelligence secrets that FBI hostage negotiators use to get their way? And whether or not they would do you any good in your business or personal negotiations. So after all, if there's a bank robbery with hostages, which I have negotiated, and there's four hostages, does the hostage negotiator say, well, I'll tell you what, why don't we meet in the middle and we'll call it a day. <laughs> you really can't compromise when you're a hostage negotiator. And that's, that's the way that I learn negotiation. So I'll, I'll take you through a little bit of how I got to learn it and how I began to apply it in my business and professional life. And it really started on a night in late winter in New York City, well after dark. I left the 
the FBI office, 26 Federal Plaza, and fought my way through traffic to get to a suicide hotline. I was volunteering on the suicide hotline because I've been told that that was the best way to become a hostage negotiator, the best experience. And as a side note, I will tell you, it's, a, it's the best way to learn how to really listen to people on an emotional intelligence perspective. So I got to the hotline that night and I picked up the phone and I answered the phone and my uh, hotline voice, hello, this is Helpline, which was the, came to be known as the late night FM DJ voice. <laughs> which now I refer to as the late night FBI DJ voice. But the voice on the other end of the phone just blurted out. He says, I, I, need, I need your help. I need your help. I got to put a lid on this day. I got to bring a lid to this day. And I listened to him and I, and I sensed that he was frantic. So that's exactly what I said. I said, you sound frantic. And immediately I could, I could feel a change in his tone of voice. And his voice came down. I felt strength come into his voice. And he started to talk to me. And he began to tell me uh, his issue was that he was battling the disease of paranoia. And he was going to go on a car trip the next day with his family. And in, he knew that on that car trip, because of his paranoia, he would get completely wound up and, and overcome with the paranoia. So since it was going to happen the next day, that night he was overcome with paranoia, thinking about the paranoia for the next day. And it completely wrapped himself up and needed to put a lid on the day. So as we began to talk, uh, he began to tell me also about how much his family was helping him. And I used something that I'd, someone else had once said to me, and I remember how strong it was because I was explaining to a colleague of mine how involved my family was and how supportive they were. And at that time, my colleague said to me, it sounds like your family's really close. And when he said that to me, I remember how good it felt and how it just drew together everything that I was feeling and how I felt myself strengthened when he said that. So I said to this, the same thing to this man on the phone. I said, it sounds like your family's really close. And he says, yeah, we are. And so then he began and he continued to talk and he talked and he began to tell me all the things that he was doing. Never be mean to someone who could hurt you by doing nothing. And it probably includes just about everybody. So be nice to everybody today. See how far that'll get you. Have an awesome day. The most dangerous negotiation is the one you don't know you're in. I met the guy who started the website Post Secrets, and it was about sending in your secrets anonymously. He got a message, including a brand new Starbucks coffee cup, which proved that the guy worked at Starbucks. And the note said, I give decaf to people who are mean to me. Hmm. The most dangerous negotiation is the one you don't know you're in. For those of you that think you might be developing a tolerance for caffeine, well, be nice to people today. Be likable. You're six times more likely to make a deal with somebody you like. Be likable. It increases your deal-making ability. Plus, when you're likable, you're in a better frame of mind. You're more positive. You're 31% smarter. 
So be likable, you increase your deal-making ability, you make yourself smarter, and you have a better day. The last impression is the lasting impression. What's more important than the first impression? The last impression. You can get away with a mediocre first impression. You can't get away with a mediocre last impression. Make a positive impression at the end. Say something that's true. Express positive regard. Express positive hope for a great outcome. Whatever it has to be. The last impression is the lasting impression. It seeds the next conversations. And it's what leaves the lasting impression. Make it a good one. I think I'm a terrible negotiator, so let's start with that. Right. We will definitely today cover some of the principles of that, but what I really wanna talk about is, in the book, when you're talking about some of the scenarios that you were in, where people, it's a life and death situation, right. and you're the line of defense, how do you deal with that emotionally? Like that's, my job feels high stress, but that's, no one's life is on the line. How do you deal with that? Yeah, well, there's a couple things. I mean, first of all, you just don't know any better. <laughs> Maybe when you first started, but not long-term. Uh, you know, training in the FBI, they started out really good. Um, I mean, they hit you, uh, you know, with the Tyson uh, line. Everybody has a plan until they get punched. Like the second day of the negotiation training in the FBI, they hit you square between the eyes with something really hard. Like a real story or yeah, something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they spent, they spent the first day laying out a philosophy, which if you understand the nuances of the words, I still completely agree with. A hostage has never been killed on deadline in the United States, ever. And so like you get kind of comfortable and you got a sense that negotiation is pretty successful overall. I mean, in reality, it's about a 93% success rate. Whoa. And then, and then the very next day, they present a scenario where it looks like a hostage got murdered right on deadline, right in front of everybody. And you just like, I mean, you were hit in a head. Can I use the words you use in the book? Because this was when I realized I don't want your job or the one that you had back then. You said she was shot twice in the back with a shotgun. It right. almost cut her in half yeah. as she flew through the glass window. Yeah, in the, and I in thought, the God damn. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know. I'd find a way. But Chris, I don't know how I'd come back from that. Like, that would, that be, would damage me in ways that I can't imagine. Well, that, that ends up kind of getting into a secondary characteristic because then when I was running a program, I went out of my way to look for negotiators that had been involved in a siege where somebody got killed and they bounced back. Mm. You know, typically with a success rate that, that's that high, if anytime you're under less than double digits of a job, sieges, whatever you want to call them, probably everything you touch is going to turn out good and you're going to get a little overconfident. And then once you start climb past double digits, I mean, odds are starting to run against you. 
And what happens with pretty much every time is the negotiator will be like, you know, I, I didn't get into this to watch people die. I'm going to find another thing to do. Or they're going to say, I'm never going to let this happen again. And those people will double down and they'll be more courageous in speaking truth to command, whether it be an ambassador or an on-scene commander and basically saying like, no, we can't do it like this. Were you ever involved in an operation where somebody got killed? Yeah. So how did you, how did you, did you need to put yourself back together or do you not react like that? Let's start with that question. Um, I've been uh, repeating one phrase in my head for a long time leading up to that, that I didn't really realize what it meant. My old boss, Gary Nessner, used to always teach us best chance of success. What we're doing is the best chance of success. And so then when uh, the Burnham Sabero case in the Philippines, a lot of people got killed. And finally- Can you give us a quick breakdown uh, what happened? Um, uh, Gracia and Martin Burnham and another American citizen named Guillermo Sabero got scooped up in a dive resort in the Philippines in a region of the Philippines everybody thought was completely safe. Now the bad guys, the Abu Sayyaf, were looking for Westerners. There'd been a siege earlier in the same year in another part of the Philippines where they looking for Americans and Westerners. They got nothing but Western Europeans. And he ultimately, that, that case was a train wreck, which I was not involved in because there were no Americans there. And the bad guys ended up scoring about $20 million as a result. Oh. Which made a rival gang jealous of the score. So they go out and they do an even more daring raid. They cross like 400 miles of open ocean on these lousy little boats, scooped everybody up in a dive resort, and ended up getting three Americans and a bunch of Filipinos. Um, Sabero ends up getting murdered by the, the terrorists about uh, three-ish weeks in, 21-ish days. How does the siege go on for that long? Oh, this thing lasted 13 months. So, Oof. yeah, that was, just, that was just the beginning. That wasn't even op- the opening act. <laughs> so, and they, did they kill them to make a point, to just prove, like, we're serious? Well, you know, they were uh, Western American arrogance, if you will. When Sabero finally got killed, or got killed early on, you know, there had been Filipinos, the bad guys were killing the Filipinos regularly. Like, it was no big deal. And I can remember at that point in time when we tried to stir up a little outrage over it, I thought, you know, we have sat here and not really said much at all while these Filipinos are getting beheaded. Mm. Now, all of a sudden, we want everybody to be bent out of shape. And I remember thinking, like, if if I was a host country... My reaction would be like, oh, now it's important to you? So, um, but that the group that was doing it at the time, I mean, they were, they did all the bad things that, that terrorist murderers do. I mean, all of them. How do you, so one, was that the first time that you were on a call where somebody got killed? It was the first kidnapping that I was directly involved in where somebody or people were getting killed, yes. All right, so when the first body shows up, what, how, are you the one talking to them? Now we coached. Okay. Uh, one of the reasons why you know what I'm doing now is applicable. Uh, the the Black Swan method is based on hostage negotiation, which is universal. Human nature. Everybody's human. So I could show up in any country. I mean, literally any country, any culture: Philippines, Nigeria, Cape Town, Baghdad. 
All I need to do is find somebody that's coachable. And that person probably knows the market, if you will. And I understand the human wiring. So we put together their, their, their knowledge of the market in very general terms and my knowledge of how to get people to engage. And then we can negotiate anywhere. When the first body comes out, what happens to you? It's the first time that this has gone awry. We're in the 7% now yeah. that don't go well. It, for me, when I think about the way that that would like impact my mind and force me to like regroup, did it knock you off or are you just laser focused? Well, you got to keep rolling because the case was still ongoing. And so no time for emotions right now. Is that what you're telling yourself? Uh, yeah, kind of probably, you know, you just, I mean, you got no choice. The case is still going on. You got, you, you got a team. You want to go fast, go alone. You want to go far, go as a team. You can always run screaming from the building, <laughs> but really, and this, this is where life gets interesting for me is that by nature, I would say I'm a run screaming from the building person, but I had to flip it all. Cause I don't respect that. And right. in discovering that you don't respect your initial impulse becomes a fascinating journey if yeah, you're willing yeah, yeah. to walk it. Align. So I'm, I'm always curious if, if other people are having to do what I have to do to keep myself centered in there, or if it's just like, nah, it didn't occur to me to run screaming from the building. Well, and when, you're, when you're in the midst of, when you're in the battle, I mean, you can't, you can't, you can't bail. I mean, people are looking at you to lead. There are other people's lives that are still on the so line. So that's your you identity. Yourself up. You wouldn't allow yourself to do that. Probably, yeah. Okay. <laughs> now let's, we're back in the Philippines. The first body just gets dropped off. You obviously decide that you're going to get stronger. You don't want it to happen again. How do you, like, are you just really good at recentering yourself emotionally? Or have you are is it a meditative practice like when the body hits i i know what that would be like for me that rush of blood to my head where my ears almost feel like they're closing in you can hear your heartbeat beating in your ears um how did you did that happen and you had to calm yourself down or does that just not happen and, and you're just so laser focused well it was principally because we were still in the midst of the siege there were still two <clears throat> still two americans whose lives were at stake and up to that point in time, the, intergovern the intergovernmental organization was probably at its worst. Like we had previously gotten through a case and everybody had gotten away with kind of half cooperating and the bodies hadn't been, the case we just finished uh, just a couple of months earlier, like nobody got killed. Mm. And it's a little bit like, like success. You went, you know, a football analogy again. It's tough for a football team to repeat after they won the Super Bowl because people are a little more focused on their own success versus team success once they reach the pinnacle. So the cooperation in the early part of the second case was horrible. I mean, horrible because they'd gotten away with it previously, and there was no body count. But now there was there was people were dying. So we really had to. We got arms more around the case. We pushed a little harder on cooperation. People got a little more serious about not cooperating, which in the long run, 12 months later, was when the final round, uh, two out of three remaining Americans got killed in a botched rescue attempt. 
and the, the case had gotten really ugly again at that point. Now, that one hit me harder than the first one because in the first one, nobody had been cooperating with us. So I felt less responsible for the outcome because the government of the Philippines was playing games with us. You know, they, they, they felt out of control on the last case. So they gave us a guy who was supposed to handle the negotiations that was just completely going missing in action on a regular basis when he was supposed to be with us. I mean, he and, and they pulled him right after the first series of deaths. They were like, all right, this ain't working out so good. So I felt, you know, we still had the case going and I hadn't got my arms wrapped around it that well. Now, 12 months later, I had my arms wrapped around it, and then when Martin Burnham, when the word came in that he got killed, that that hit me. That was a, that was a real. I'll never forget that moment. I was I was at home in the U.S. when I when I got the call that he'd been killed. That for me at the time was difficult. Uh, worst moment of my professional career. One of my worst personal moments until I'm listening to a case a couple years later listening to a negotiator talk about how hard it was on him when a baby had gotten killed in siege. Oh, God. And I remember thinking at the time, and it was a guy I had a tremendous amount of respect for. I thought, hard on you? That wasn't your relative. And then when I thought about that, I thought, and how am I, you know, feeling sorry for myself over Martin Burnham's death because he wasn't my father? He wasn't, you know, my spouse. He wasn't my brother. You know, I, I got no right feeling bad about this. Or at least to the extent that his family members do. So that, you know, that was a bit of, you know, the overall journey that putting things in perspective. Like you asked to be in the middle of this stuff. It's a volunteer job. You're going to feel sorry for yourself when you volunteered. That's probably out of perspective. Why did you volunteer? You know, I, I found myself, I was in crisis response. I was a member of the FBI SWAT team, and I had re-injured my knee, and I wanted to stay in crisis response. I liked crisis response. People got to make up their mind. You know, you can't go, well, let's sleep on this. You know, let's give us 24 hours to think about it. You know, you can't do that. You, get, you know, you got to make a decision. And I've always been in favor of decision-making. So... I'd been a SWAT guy and we had hostage negotiators and it was a little bit like what we were talking about earlier. You know, some stuff is a lot harder than it looks from the outside. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I literally remember thinking to myself, I talk to people every day. I could talk to terrorists. How hard could it be? You know, my son and I joked that a Voss family motto is how hard could it be? <laughs> Which is a little bit like, you know, it's a little bit like the rednecks famous last words. Hey, watch this. Yeah. Hold my beer. <laughs> Hold my beer. So, uh, but then I got into it and I've been volunteered. When I finally got trained, I got volunteered on a suicide hotline. And then when I'm in it, I'm like, I'm around these extraordinary people that are doing phenomenal things with words. I mean, with words, not actual actions, just words, making a huge difference and being in the middle of these sieges and making a difference simply by what they said. And I thought, now nah, I, you know, I could get into this. This, this, this could be good. And it was. 
And so how does that journey begin of learning what to say? Like, what are they, what are the sort of magic words? Like take us back to the Philippines, the bodies start coming out. How do you talk somebody down like that? Like it, it just seems like all hope is lost once they kill the first person. There's no backing out. Yeah, man, they still got more people that are at stake. <clears throat> and so you, you, you can't not communicate. And, you know, it's kind of like any other negotiation where the other side is doing stuff that is just not in their interest, but they're absolutely convinced that they're right. I mean, these guys want to get paid. And negotiation is not what it is to you, it's what it is to the other side. You get all bent out of shape that it's a horrific, horrible thing. That was something I heard you say, I think in, in an interview. Yeah. So there is no such thing as logical. There's right. only what matters to you. Yeah. And I was like, oh side. my God, that is so true. You literally just cut through decades worth of economics textbooks <laughs> that try to make people seem rational with that yeah. one sentence. That, that the second I heard you say that, I was like, oh my God, that is absolutely true. There is no such thing as logical. There's only what matters to you. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so is that like when you come into a situation like that, are you just asking yourself what matters to this person? Yeah. You is know, that is that the most fundamental question, what matters? Then what matters? And, and then ultimately people make up their mind principally on what they perceive the loss to be. Um, and that's, that's human nature. doesn't matter the scenario. When you say the loss, the loss that led them to do this or what losing in that scenario would look like? Got to look at both. Loss that drove them to the table in the first place to take the action. And then what loss are they avoiding by the action? And you want to get in their head and find out what it is. And since what loss are they avoiding is all perception, you know, vision of the future, then depending upon how you got in their head, if you're in there by invitation, which is the whole point of empathy or the tactical application of empathy, to get in by invitation. Since you're in there by invitation, then the idea is to get them to look at another loss. So if it's a kidnapping, it's a question that is, is, seems as um, merciless as how are you going to get paid if you kill people? How how are we gonna how are we gonna collaborate? You know how much are you losing by getting rid of hostages when you could have gotten paid for them? Because somebody's gonna scare up the money for the hostage. Right. Somebody's going to. A hostage negotiator's real job internationally is to make sure that if somebody scares up that money, that there's enough of a trail left that you can hunt them down afterwards. It's exactly why you give a bank teller bait money. You don't want the bank teller to get shot over money. Now, you also don't want the bank robber to leave the bank with the entire contents of the vault. You give them enough money so the bank teller doesn't get shot, the bad guy leaves, and you chase them down afterwards. That's the way to save lives and put the bad guys out of business. Do you want to get them focused back on the money again? And then if they kill more hostages, it's their loss. 
And that's when they start to think like, all right, well, maybe we've made our point. You know, let, let, them, let, them, let them feel that way. Who cares how they feel as long as you get what you want? And that's the idea to try to re-engineer the outcome. That's really interesting. Okay, so let's talk about what makes somebody a good negotiator. What does the smarter look like? So if all of this is about two lines of code, like so much of your book revolves around once you understand how people are wired, once you understand what their religion is, once you understand their two lines of code, we become controllable isn't the right word, but we become movable. Influenceable, if yeah. that's a word. So how do we begin to suss that out? So when you're sitting across the table, and I like, I know that a lot of this deploys against business negotiations, but I want to keep it when lives are on the line. So ultra high stakes, literal life and death. What are you asking? What are you looking for? How much of like the fact that you guys have these teams and everybody's broken up? Okay, you're looking for positive statements. You're looking for negative. Walk us through that. What, what's the setup? And then how are we going to tease out this information? Well, uh, yeah, the setup is, yeah, we, you know, we're, we're going to pull together a team because there's so much in what's said and the way it's said, even more in the way it's said. That there's just there's more information coming off a person if even if you can't see them. There's more information that you can keep up with if you're not trying to respond. And then, you know, you formulate a statement in your mind, and the amount of time that you're formulating a statement, you're not listening. So there's just more data there than one person can handle. So we built a team concept. And we had different people listen for different things. And the more we thought about it, like how long did the conversation go? How much profanity, which is, you know, emotional adjectives. How many emotional adjectives were in there? Negative emotional adjectives. As there's few, as the conversations get longer and there's fewer negative emotional adjectives, you're making progress. It's never a straight line, so it's gonna go and come. So, you know, what's our pulse? What's our frequency? And then would people really start listening for the nuances? And you, you get five people together. I mean, if you want to listen for everything, you probably need at least five people keeping track of everything. And it then, then, then the patterns start to emerge really fast. Or like in a, in a tractor man siege in D.C. And tractor man? Yeah, Dwight Watson drove a tractor to the middle of Washington, D.C., in 2003, just before the beginning of the first Iraq war. And his family had been crushed by the tobacco industry settlement. They were no longer able to farm and sell enough tobacco. You know, I don't know, but this, the tobacco industry settlement ended up crushing his family business. He tried to protest in D.C. a couple of times, got legal permits to protest. Nobody cared. You know, save the tobacco farmer. That ain't exactly a hashtag that's real popular. Yeah. And it's not their fault that that's how they grew up making a living, which was com completely legal, acceptable, and nothing wrong. And then the world suddenly decides it's a bad thing. So he protests a couple years in a row. Nobody cares. So he rolls back into D.C. now with his tractor and his, and his, and his trailer and his 4x4 his, uh, and claims he's got bombs. Which gets everybody's attention. Has a way of doing it. Yeah, yeah, you'll get somebody's attention. 
the work in the case, park police negotiators were backing them up, we're coaching them, we're doing all the analysis for them. You know, we're the team that we put up around them because we work a, a good team. And we get to the point where he's found a face-saving way to surrender. You know, he said, I was in the 82nd Airborne, the 82nd Airborne, parachutes behind enemy lines, and you're there for, for 72 hours with no backup, you can withdraw. So basically, he's agreed to come out after 72 hours. Now, the problem is, he's a volatile dude. And since we don't know for sure whether or not he's got explosives, in a fit of rage, if he goes the wrong direction, the sniper's got a green light on him. And we're thinking like, all right, we got to keep this guy from getting himself killed. Because when you're in a rage, you're going to do something stupid, and there's a very specific protocol where we suspect the explosives might be, and if he makes a move for the explosives, we cannot wait and find out if they're there. And so we're thinking, like, we got to get this guy out of here in less than 72 hours because that's just too much for, for stable behavior. We cannot expect him to stay cool for 72 hours. So there's a disagreement within in the negotiation cell as to when he said he's going to come out. And I look at the negotiators and I go, when's, when's Dwight coming out? And they go, like, yeah, he's coming out tomorrow. And I said, I, I don't think he is. I think we're still 36 hours away. You know, we're not, we're not eight hours away. Well, we'll call him and ask him. And I'm like, hold, 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 hold it before we call him. In the event he's not coming out tomorrow morning, what are we going to say to get him to change his mind? Now, we've heard all this military stuff, all this hyper-masculine stuff, and buried in the military jargon and the hyper-masculine stuff, their hints of his religion, which is Christianity. Just hints of it, just hints. And Winnie Miller, a female negotiator on my team, sitting in the back of the room, and we're, what do we say, what do we say, what do we say? And Winnie goes, tell him tomorrow's the dawn of the third day. Because, you know, in the Christian religion, Jesus crucified on Friday, he gets up on Sunday. That's 48 hours. Mm. That ain't three days. That's not 72. One day to Saturday, it's two days to Sunday. So we're thinking about this. And we're like, yeah, okay. Dawn of the third day. So we call him back on the phone. They go, Dwight, when are you coming out? You're coming out tomorrow, right? And he goes, no, I'm not coming out tomorrow. And then the negotiator brilliantly, because delivery is as important as awards. She brilliantly says, Dwight. Tomorrow's the dawn of the third day. There's this long silence on the other end of the line. He goes, I'll come out tomorrow. Now, she saved his life because I promise you that 24 more hours, he'd have cracked and he'd have made some move where the sniper would have taken him out. And we did not want that to happen. By this point in time, we're talking to this and this, this poor schmuck has just been crushed. He's tried to get the world's attention we don't think he's got bombs, but we don't know he doesn't have bombs, and we can't take that chance. We got to get him out of there before he gets himself killed. And so that was kind of, you know, here's a guy doing something that looked really bad, but there were still, possibly to your point, what's inside somebody? You know, what are those kernels, those grains that are still in there that maybe we can uncover, that maybe we can reach in and reach?
and 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 we got him out. He came out that nobody nobody got hurt. Okay, so that was a case of literally knowing their religion, and also there's something in there about knowing that he needs to save face and the military thing about 72 hours and right, having right. an honorable exit and all of that. Right, look, Chris, you said at the beginning the devil is in the detail. And I really want people listening to this podcast to get detail from us about how they, from the minute they turn off this podcast and go and buy your book, Never Split the Difference, how from that moment they can be better negotiators. What is the best way to do that? Should we role play? Do you want to explain to us the skills that are involved in negotiating? How do you normally work this kind of thing? Well, let the other side go first. And that's really hard to do because everybody wants to have their say. One of the things about negotiation is negotiation is the art of letting the other side have your way. How do you do that? You got to let them talk. So um, let's say you have a promotional event of mine. You want to do a promotional event with me. You, you, got, you got a whole game plan laid out. And um, you're a typical negotiator. You're worried about your budget. You're worried about the details. You want to be in control. Um, how would you start that? How would you normally start that? If you wanted to contact me about it, make the deal. I would call you and I'd say, hey, Chris, uh, my name's Jake. I'm based in the UK. I hear you've got a new book out, Never Split the Difference. I, I run a events agency in the UK and I would love the opportunity to share your story with people um, across the pond. How do you fancy that? Sounds like you had something specific in mind. Yeah, uh, yeah, I absolutely do. Yeah, I want to do a book tour around the UK. Um, and I reckon we can sell out theatres. Um, and I've got some great contacts in the TV industry. So I reckon I can get you on to um, BBC Breakfast and Good Morning Britain. They're the two big early morning programmes over here. Um, what do you think? All right, so I'm going to stop right there. And I'm going to talk about what just happened. Yeah. Before you contacted me, whether you actually wrote it down or you're aware of it, you have an entire vision in your head. Vision drives decision. Now there there are a lot of times in negotiations where people are actually just contacting someone to get a competing bid, or they're looking to do due diligence. Like let's say you wanna do this whole book tour thing, but you wanna do it with an equivalent author, there's somebody else with a business book out there, and you're dry running with me to see what I might be looking for. Which means the vision in your head does not include me. So my first saying sounds like you've got something in mind. It doesn't, I didn't say, what do you have in mind? Because there's a, any question puts people on guard to some degree. Now, what do you have in mind is a good, what we would refer to as a calibrated question. A lot of other people would call either an open-ended question or a reporter's question. Who, what, when, where, why, and how? Reporter's interrogative. I ask that question if I want you to stop and think. It triggers what Danny Kahneman would refer to as in-depth, slow thinking. If in that moment I want you to stop and think and take a step back, I'll ask you what question. If instead I want to trigger a straight stream of consciousness, 
seems like sounds like you had something in mind hits your brain in a completely different way and it's much more likely to open up a direct downstream unvarnished stream of consciousness of your thoughts now there's no guarantee of success of any approach i just want to use the stuff that's most likely to get the thinking out of you without exhausting you I want you to give me a downstream that you're comfortable with, which simultaneously makes it f me feel to you like I'm easy to work with. Yeah, yeah. Well, you were kind of praising me when you said to me, seems like you've got uh, something. In, I, I almost felt I had to tell you something because I almost felt like you'd or, you were already impressed. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's all this additional emotional intelligence relationship building benefits that kind of come with this approach entirely. So can I flip it slightly because I'm intrigued by this approach. I want to go back to the angle Jake was talking about, but in relation to your days as a FBI negotiator, what would you do if somebody refused to play ball with you? So if somebody just refused to engage? Well, you know, that's part of the assessment of the process. Now we probably start, what we consider to be one-way dialogue because you refusing to answer back doesn't mean you're not listening. So if you're refusing to answer me back, what does that mean? What that means is you're scared. Your guard is up. You don't know if you could trust me. The future looks extremely uncertain to you. You're frozen. So that informs me as to now I'm going to start taking educated guesses. You know, each one of these things sounds like is a label. Looks like, feels like. Those are, those are educated guesses. You know, we, we have a scientific term for them. We call them swags. That's a scientific wild-ass guess. I'm going to take a scientific <laughs> wild-ass guess on what you're feeling. So I'm negotiating. We got a 27th floor of a high-rise in, a, in, a, in Harlem, in New York in uh, in the 90s we have brought the circus to town we got the SWAT team we got up 27 floors in this high rise i mean the circus has come to town we've made so much noise getting up there we figure there's no way that these guys are not long gone because we brought the circus we got elephants we got trapeze artists i mean we make that much noise bringing an entire SWAT team and everybody to bear on this apartment so I think we're talking to an empty apartment. I get two baby negotiators with me. They're still in training. I'm like, cool. This is right of passage. Everybody talks to an empty apartment at some point in time. In point of fact, the fugitives are inside and they're heavily armed. And so I just say, look, I want you to know that I know you're scared. And I know you're worried about coming out. And I know you're worried about getting hurt when you're coming out. Here's what it's going to look like when you come out so that you don't get hurt. Because I said vision drives decision, right? I got to start putting a vision in their head of them coming out safely. So we're, we're talking to this empty apartment. I'm thoroughly convinced it's empty for six hours. Six hours of this over and over and over. And six hours in, a sniper on an adjacent building says, I just saw a curtain move inside. And we all go like, Holy cow, they really are in there. And so then I go, look, you know, 
We just saw the curtains move on the inside. One of you just looked out the window. I've been telling you for six hours, we're not going away and that you're going to come out safe. And about five minutes later, without saying a word, the door opens and a pair of hands comes out exactly as I've described. I said, you have to come out with your hands first so that we can see that they're empty so we don't hurt you. And you've got to move really slow because we've got to keep you safe. We brought all three out, all three of them out one at a time, exactly like that. They never said a word. When, when we got outside, the first one to come out was a female. And I went to talk to her. I'm like, I've been talking for six hours. Why don't you say something? And she says, well, we were hoping you would go away. And I said, well, if you were hoping we, were go, we would go away, why'd you come out? She said, well, you said you'd never go away. So we finally believed you and decided to come out. What? Unbelievable. When you were doing these negotiations, how were you actually able to ultimately keep your mental sanity? Because that's huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, when I first got into it, I was volunteering on a suicide hotline. Right. And... Uh, there was a lot of oversight when you start out, a lot of really good training and then a fair amount of oversight. You know, you take once where you're still in training, you start, you take a call and then you go and you talk about the call. And if you had, and you get coaching, um, you know, you, when you're in the call, you're on your own. But afterwards, immediate feedback from who was listening to the call gave you some coaching. And that got me started. And But, but then I failed to appreciate my first year on the hotline, how perishable the skills were and what you're talking about. How, how do you practice? How do you stay sharp? After I'd been on the hotline for a year, we come up for an, I come up for an annual review and I take this call and I think I did a great job. I mean, I was so good that the person that called congratulated me on how good I was. And I remember getting ready to go in the, in the room to listen to the supervisor who was reviewing it. And I was kind of like, ah, you know, ah, I'm looking forward to this. And this really sweetheart of a guy named Jim, he's like, man, that was horrible. I go, did you actually, this is a call I took? <laughs> did you hear that guy congratulate me how good I was? He goes, yeah, let's start that. that that's the first problem. If they tell you that you did a good job, then they're helpless without you. Which means you didn't make him feel empowered in any way. You didn't make him feel like he found the answer himself. As soon as you get off the phone, he's dude's lost again. That's the first thing you did wrong. And so I was like, I had no idea how much my skills had eroded. So we advocated in the FBI teaching it as one method to stay sharp. I think probably the best best method would be to review your recordings, the actual execution with colleagues, and then to be able to go over it with them. That I don't think there could be a, a better way. It's better than role playing. It's better than teaching. We didn't have that capacity. So we put a heavy emphasis on teaching because you don't want to be embarrassed and teach it wrong. So you take a deep dive and we, we role played a lot. Role playing's limitation with emotional intelligence scenarios is you got to have a role player that's going to respond correctly. And most of the time they won't. So if your role player isn't any good, then it's, you got to teach it. And we taught constantly. And then we would 
my first year being a full-time hostage negotiator, it was a massive amount of um, uh, money for field exercises. So I got a chance to, we traveled all over the U.S. putting negotiation teams into really complicated field exercises. So I got a lot of practice coaching teams mm-hmm. also, and then trying to bring out the best of people. But, you know, rehearsal, some sort of s- small stakes rehearsals where people didn't actually get hurt. Right. And, and you mentioned being embarrassed. You have to let down your ego, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because I've done this before. I don't really take too many sales calls myself these days, but I will go back into the archives and have my team listen to me on some sales calls. And it's just, it really is humiliating. <laughs> but I get them to rip me apart because they learn. And as right. you said there, you then began coaching other people and you learn a lot from teaching, even if you're not the best expert, right? Because you identify things that are at the top of your mind that maybe for other people, they've sunk down to the back of their mind. Right. 